Well, good morning. My name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. I want you to take your Bibles and turn them to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12 of Romans chapter 14. It's a great section. It's one, I think, once you read it, you're going to see that it provides a, a really interesting conversation for us as we study God's Word this morning and we read it. Um, I'm excited to, to gather with you this morning. If it's your first time, I'd love to uh, meet you after the service and have an opportunity to connect with you uh, as well. And we're just excited for this opportunity to worship. Let's give our attention now to God's Word. This is what it says, Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lives, lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Lord, we Humble ourselves before your word because we believe that it's you who speaks through it. And Lord, as we bring our lives before you this morning, we ask that you might put us in greater awareness of that time and moment in our life where we will give an account of what we have done to you. That it might help us in the ways that we relate to one another in the present. That we would learn to be able to disagree with one another in a spirit of welcome. Lord, that you would show us that love can overcome so many of the things that we allow to divide us. Lord, we confess that we are often raised up in pride. We ask that you would Work in us through your spirit to humble us today. 
that through that humility we might join you in loving one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if, if you have a big family, or if you've ever been in charge of like a, a large group event or been going somewhere with a large group and you're going into a restaurant, you've probably had the same experience. You know, you, you go in and you see, you know, if you can get a table and you ask if you can get se- seating for dinner in the restaurant and you tell them you have 12, maybe 15 people and, uh, you know, they, they, the host says, yeah, we can put you at a couple of tables, you know. We, we make a couple tables throughout the restaurant. You guys can split your group up and sit down. That's a, that's a lot of people. But you're not there to, to sit at a bunch of tables. You are there to be together. You want to be at the same table. You want your whole group to be together. So you need a table for 15 in a restaurant. And what happens? It causes a sort of chaos, doesn't it? Like in, in most restaurants, you know, there's, there's not table setting for 15. Yesterday I, I got a picture from one of the, the guys from at Man Down. I think it was Alex. He uh, took a picture of, uh, it looked like 25 guys at Buffalo Wild Wings all at one table. Now, when you walk into Buffalo Wild Wings, there isn't a table for 25. You see, what has to happen is everything that's been sort of there has to get rearranged. It causes a bit of chaos, right? Everybody's dining around you, and, and the, the host or hostesses, they go into action, start moving things around. Tables and chairs come from different spots. It disrupts the previous setup. The goal is clear. We need to make space to get everyone around this table. And the spaces you designated in the restaurant aren't going to work the way that things are currently arranged. You ever have that experience? Well, in this passage, what's going on actually is Paul is calling the Gentile and Jewish Christians to be together in the church. He's in a sense been writing this whole book to call God's people around the same table. To bring them together. He's doing something similar to what we were just talking about. He is saying, if you're going to honor the cross of Jesus and the family it creates simply by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to need to make space for a bigger table and some stuff in your life is going to have to get moved around. For all of us. You see, the family of God that agrees in Christ on matters of first importance may disagree on many cultural decisions. I mean, could we agree this morning as we get started that it seems like in our present culture that we don't know how to disagree with one another? That this isn't just a problem that we're distant from? That the idea of what we do during disagreement is something that we deeply need the wisdom of God's word for. You see, the family of God that agrees in Christ Jesus in matters of first importance about the gospel may disagree on many cultural decisions, but the table belongs to Jesus and we'd better be ready to make space for those whom he has invited to join us. 
So Paul is teaching the church here in this passage. You ever wonder, what, what was all this stuff about food and what we eat and what we drink and what days we observe and what's going on? All of this instruction, Paul has one idea he wants to get across that really he's been building up to in the book of Romans. All of Paul's doctrine has been helping the Romans rest, wrestle with the idea of unity in the body of Christ. In this passage, he gets to the main idea, and I would say it this way, that the gospel is big enough to provide the space for welcome without agreement. You see, this is what he wants us to understand, that the gospel itself, the message of Jesus Christ, the central purposes of God, the the gospel is big enough that it can provide the space for welcome around the table even when there's disagreement. That's his point. Why does he say that? Well, the biggest idea is because it's the work. The gospel itself is the work of a big-hearted God, not small-minded men. And so much of what we divide over, especially as we just consider in a church as Christians, so much of what we divide over is small compared to God's purposes and plans. Practically speaking, in this passage, Paul is is arguing in Romans that we can overlook a lot of our disagreement with one another when we realize how much God overlooked in us in order to save us and reconcile us to him. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel we sing about, what we're here to gather around, what we've been called to celebrate. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God chose to overlook our sin. He chose to overlook our sin when it deserved his judgment and justice. He overlooked our sin until the time would come that he would send his own son into the world to bear the burden of our sin. Jesus so deeply identified and drew near to us that it says he took our sin upon himself Instead of tossing us aside, and he dealt with it by suffering the fullness of our sin's effects and the real judgment our sin deserved when he died on the cross in in our place. That means when Jesus could have judged us, he planned with God the Father to take our judgment so that we could be forgiven. Is this anybody's story today? That you are forgiven because God chose to overlook your sin. And count it punished in Christ by faith. You see, the welcome of Jesus Christ is so powerful that Paul says that while we were still sinners, he died for us so that we could repent of our sin and be welcomed into the family of God. And with a gospel that big and welcoming, we best consider what we divide and disagree over in comparison to it. We best consider all the other things that we might be hot-headed or driven or ambitious to get other people to agree with us about in comparison to the size and purpose of the gospel. When we do not listen to this instruction, we see that Paul shows us there are many dangers that come with it. And that's what we're going to look at as we unfold the rest of this passage. I want you to see them with me. There are several. I'm just going to mention five as we roll through them. The first one is going to be the longest one, but then we're going to work our way through a few more. But the first thing we see is when we do not listen to this instruction that Paul has given, we are in danger of endless quarreling. 
we're in danger of endless quarreling. I don't know if you're like me, but I found the quarreling of our day suffocatingly exhausting. You know, we come into a church because we need rest from the weariness of what sin does to us. And, and there's an invitation in this passage to avoid the danger in the church of endless quarreling. Let's look at the text. When we look at the text, it helps us to get the, to the heart of Paul's concern. He says to the church in Rome, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. I've said this a lot in our series through the book of Romans as we've been making our way. But in the church at Rome, you had this mixture, uh, mixed group of believers. You had Roman Gentile Christians who were coming out of a background of paganism, becoming Christians without a whole lot of understanding of the Jewish and Christian cultural background. And then you also had Jewish Christians that had a strong sort of separatist culture that ceremonially observed a strict religious diet and observances of certain days and other things. You know, we've kind of talked about that. And you got these people coming out of those two really different backgrounds. Now, there's a lot of discussion in scholarly circles about what it means exactly here that you have this one group who is weak in faith and another designated as strong. But from this and the rest of chapter 14, it seems to mean this. Let me just try to help kind of get us in the category of what he's saying here as he talks about disagreements. And he begins here by saying, as for the one who is weak in faith, he's instructing the others, welcome him, but not for the purpose of quarreling. Who is he talking about? The weak. And then later he mentions the strong. And I think if we're going to understand this passage, we've got to understand what he's talking about. Well, first of all, I want you to see before anything that he, he, when he says weak in the faith, all of them are in the faith. That he's saying that they're in the faith. The, the gospel that we've talked about that's big enough to create a space of welcome, even when there's not agreement, Includes those who are weak in faith in certain ways and those who are strong in faith in certain ways. And sometimes that changes no matter what, depending on the issue you're talking about. And so he's, he's, he's instructing them. But in this passage particularly, we had one person that is described here as strong who believes the gospel was their basis of righteousness and right standing with God so strongly that they're not worried that they may be offending God by eating food bought in the marketplace that may have been offered to idols. This was their cultural issue at the time. And so you have lots of idolatry going on in the city. And so much of the meat and the things that were sold were first offered in a sort of act of worship to pagan gods. And so, with a tender conscience, many of the, the Christians who had become believers uh, had a tender conscience towards thinking about having a sort of guilt by association. A guilt by association that would, uh, that would actually cause them to feel like they were sinning against God by eating that food. And so, ultimately, there's this, this, this group, he says, those who could be confident... 
that it was okay for them to eat the food. He says they, they're strong in faith. They know that their relationship to God happens on the basis of faith. And they're not worried about whether or not they're eating food that may have been connected to something to do with offering to idols. They're just going to the store, buying the food, eating the food, walking with God. Trusting, I'm securing him by faith. Now here, we also have those that are described as weak in faith in this regard. We see it in verse 2 where they, they do believe the gospel, but their tender consciences and their cultural backgrounds make it difficult to believe or to have the faith that they need not be concerned about eating the food offered to idols. You see that? Let's look at a little more close. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So, so what had happened is you had some Christians who were like, well, I, I can't buy meat anywhere <laughs> that isn't offered to idols, so I'm going to be a vegetarian. That sounds like a terrible option in my mind, <laughs> just to be honest. But, but that's, that's what you had going on. So he says in verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables now it's not meant to be derogatory but a description of the faith that they have to believe that they're free from such concerns that are not clear core moral issues that's what's happening but but look what happens before paul goes into explaining he says now 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 that was a, a matter of hot debate if you've got one person who thinks they might be sinning against god and that other people should be more uh, tender in their conscience and others who are sort of living in the freedom of that and you put them all in the same room and tell them to talk about it guess what happens you get heat you get argument you get disagreement you get division we get passionate and so before Paul gets into explaining how to deal with such issues or framing it more for us, he says two options are off the table. Let's see what they are. The first one is not creating a welcome of one another. Not having a spirit of welcome towards one another inside of this conversation. That option is off the table. When we think about welcome, we think about creating a space of safety for people to come in and enter into our lives as the person that they are. When someone comes into my home as a guest and I welcome them into my home, I don't first make sure they agree with me on everything. Right? And in fact, they often... You've probably had this experience. People come in and they talk about all sorts of things that I disagree with. And as a host of that guest, I make strategic decisions about whether I feel like arguing with them and potentially causing this delightful little meal we were planning to have to just be an argument, or whether I give them the space to be themselves, to deepen our relationship, for them to experience safety and welcome in my presence so that then we can speak about things in a substantive way and understand one another. But the first thing I have to do for any guest that comes into my house is make sure that they feel welcome. And so he's saying here in the church, when it comes to those of us as we have these sorts of disagreement, that we have a responsibility, first of all, that we would create a space of welcome. So not creating a real welcome is off the table. An endless 
quarreling is the second thing that is off the table. He actually, as he says, those who are kind of really tender in their conscience about all sorts of detailed things, bring them on into the church. But we're not going to turn all of our attention on trying to figure out how we can agree on all of those things and go into a mode where we're endlessly talking about those things and we're never talking about the advancement of the mission of the gospel. We're never talking about the things that are central that we actually agree on. Most Christians who spend their times arguing with one another or arguing with other Christians need to be reminded that they've got far more to agree upon in the Lord Jesus Christ than they have to disagree about. And so we see Paul saying those things are off the table. The mission of the gospel that he's engaged in will be stifled if in welcoming one another, it's really just an occasion for endless quarreling because we have the wrong perspective about what matters. You see, Paul believes we can and we are in danger of endless quarreling over secondary issues that disrupt the welcome and mission of the church. He believes we have that danger. And, and we've already talked. We see it in our time as well. And, 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 you know, it's about different issues. We aren't having any conversation about food offered to idols, but we've got all sorts of things uh, that fall into this category. Our staff, we spent a little bit of time this week just kind of coming up with some of those and thinking about them so that we could say, here's, the w- here's ways in which we could be in danger of endless quarreling as we try to force agreement on a whole bunch of issues that maybe we just need to create welcome and let the Lord work on one another. What are those things? We've got disagreements where we can provide welcome and space and real conversation. Churches do it all the time. Whether it's okay for a Christian to drink alcohol or it would be wiser to completely abstain. I think if I got to every person in this room, I'd find some disagreement on that subject. We'd find a spectrum of answers about what's best, how we should live our faith in this context, in this time, in different situations, and and what the right decisions are. We'd find some disagreement. Whether it's okay for a Christian to vote Republican or Democrat, how we work out our political strategies, how involved in politics we are at all. We would find in a room like this a matter of disagreement about the specifics of lots of decisions related to that, wouldn't we? We have disagreements. Christians disagree about these things. Uh, Christians have disagreements about whether Christians should or shouldn't celebrate certain holidays. And we're coming up on Halloween. I mean, I've been a Christian long enough and a pastor long enough. You know, you got some Christians who would say, you shouldn't do anything related to that or anything that leans in that direction. And others that would say, hey, this is the best mission opportunity you have in your community. And, and you're, you're wrong if you disagree with either one. Right? Maybe you find yourself in one of those categories. You feel strongly about that issue. We have disagreements about what sort of worship music that we should use or not use in our churches. Should we sing hymns? Are you okay with singing songs from particular groups that you might have doctrinal disagreement with? And you would find in a church that there's people who have convictions about one answer to that question and others who disagree with those convictions. And yet here we are, together in a body, expected to welcome one another. There are disagreements among Christians about keeping a Sabbath or observing Old Testament Jewish holidays. In some circles, the clothing women should wear or whether they should wear makeup, working outside the home, playing leadership roles in organizations. 
We have disagreements about whether or when it was appropriate during the early pandemic to go back to worshiping in person. That wasn't too long ago, right? I mean, some of y'all could still find that same disagreement happening on your timeline of social media. Some of you may feel one way or the other about how we did or didn't make decisions about that. Over the past few years, we've had disagreements among Christians about whether to take the vaccine or not to take the vaccine, right? What it meant if you did take it? What it meant if you didn't take it? It's not like there was easy answers to any of these things. And our first impulse is to say, look at all this division. <laughs> Let's fix this division. Can't somebody just make all, what is wrong with us that we just can't all agree? And that, that's kind of the thing. Like, and, and we just want to line up and make everybody agree. What's wrong? Look at all this division. All you Christians should be able to agree about these things. But Paul, the realist, look what he does. The realist and the spiritually wise leader, he says, no, you won't always be able to agree. You're not going to be able to do it. <laughs> But you can welcome one another in the gospel and determine that there is a space enough to allow these disagreements and still love Jesus and, and recognize that we all have an accountability before God before we have any responsibility to one another. Otherwise, listen, what happens if we have to all agree on all of these things? We will spend all of our time quarreling and we will miss the central call that we've just been talking about for weeks now of learning to love one another and loving our community in a way that shows them that the gospel is big enough that others can come around our table even if they don't agree with us about everything. And so it's important we are in danger of quarreling over everything. And I don't want to be a part of a church where that's what dominates all of the conversations. Month after month, news cycle after news cycle. That's not going to let up. It's not going to change. There is always someone who would benefit from us being divided. But yet Jesus says, welcome one another. Inside of this, inside the gospel, welcome one another. And you don't even have to agree all the time. Look what he says. If we don't listen to this, we, second thing, we are in danger of rejecting those whom God has welcomed. That's why he tells us to do it. Verse 3, look how clearly he says it. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him he's looking at that and he's going he's going to each person who's frustrated with the other he says that's a person whom god has welcomed and your first priority is to receive them with a sense of welcome so paul continues to push this welcome theme forward and he gives us some instruction instead of forced agreement he says clearly let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats so contrary that, that tells us that there are two things that are contrary to this spirit of welcome he wants to build for us uh, so contrary to a spirit of welcome are two things in this eating situation in rome you see for the meat eaters we'll just call them the meat eaters it's easier that way for the meat eaters there's this temptation that they have don't they to despise those who are consciously conscientiously objecting that's what's ha the danger he warns them about. You see, it complicates things 
I don't get why they care about this. It's annoying. This is the, the danger. You know, maybe associating with them draws some of the ostracization of seeming extreme or out of touch in our culture. And I don't want to be a Christian that's seen as extreme and out of touch. So I don't want to draw near and be connected and associated with somebody who disagrees with me about things that I care about. So you've got this side. He says, you've got to be careful that you don't despise that other person who you disagree with. But then he goes over then for the conscientious uh, here who abstain in this issue of food. There's the temptation to judge the others as sinning when they don't have a basis for doing so. When they say, well, my conscience is much more sensitive and I'm willing to do this difficult thing that you aren't willing to abstain from. And, uh, you know, you're sinning because you won't do that. Obviously, if, if I have this deep of conviction, you ought to as well. But look how clearly Paul says it. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. <laughs> I mean, it can't get any clearer than that. The judgment here is a prideful, raised position from which they consider themselves more spiritually serious and able to judge the others as sinners on a matter of disagreement like this that the scripture hasn't been abundantly clear about. Now, it's challenging for us because we think that the reasoning that we use, you and I do this, we, we think that the reasoning we use to get from the different things that Scripture actually says to the positions that we ourselves have taken, that that reasoning is flawless and it should be embraced by everyone, but it's not. It simply isn't. The danger is when my reasoned position becomes a litmus test to welcome others and a litmus test for fellowship that narrows the gospel or makes me the arbiter of who blesses others or who belongs rather than uh, the clear teaching in Scripture. Paul says the danger is this. You are rejecting the person whom God has welcomed. Now, I can remember several years ago my family spent uh, seven weeks of the summer in Iceland serving with our church planters there while we were gone uh, we had made the, an arrangement with one of our church members to to come by a couple times and mow the lawn and uh, so he, you know not thinking anything of it uh, he came by and he started to to mow the lawn and when that person came by my neighbor who lives near me we won't identify him publicly uh, I love the guy but my neighbor went into protection mode he sees somebody he doesn't know on my property. And uh, he eventually goes to, to this guy and he says, you got to get out of here. You're not welcome. And uh, it's not okay. You just go. I'll take care of the lawn. Get off his property. <laughs> and, you know, really nice guy, church member, loves the Lord. Like, uh, but my pastor's lawn needs mowed. And, I, you know, agreed I'd do this. And he's like, well, he goes. He just leaves. And of course, my neighbor, he mows the lawn. Good for him. Uh, but, I mean, think about what he did. Like, he kicked someone off of my property who I invited to be there. You know, and, and because I know his heart, and I actually appreciate having a really protective neighbor, uh, it was cool, and it was all good. But, but, but think about what is happening when we usurp the authority of someone else to be able to say who is welcome in the space that they've made. 
You see, the church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He gets to decide who's welcome on it. He has determined the stipulations for who can come around the table. And by faith in the Lord Jesus, not because of our performance or the positions we take on a whole host of cultural issues, by faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, we are welcome around the table. And nobody can come across the property and say, you don't belong here. Get off Jesus' property. It's a, it's a danger. He says in another way, the third thing, if we do this, we don't heed this instruction. Endless quarreling, don't create a sense of welcome. We're in danger of judging God's servant. See, it isn't just a problem, problem that God has welcomed them and we've gotten rid of them. We're in danger, he says, verse 4, of judging God's servant. Verse 4 says it really clearly, who are you? <laughs> you know, you think about my neighbor, you're going to go like, who are you to throw me off of someone else's property, right? How did you decide that you were the authority? And this is the tone of what Paul is, is getting at. Well, you know, on all of these issues that take a lot of wisdom and where lots of people disagree, who exactly assigned you to make the decision about whether everyone else is right? It is a good question, isn't it? One that we would do well to answer. You know, if you've ever worked a, a job in public service, you have no doubt had the experience where someone who thinks they understand what your task is gives you a different instruction than what your boss gave you. You ever had that experience? You know, I, you know being a pastor, you get this a lot. You know, people like, want to tell you how to do your job, it's, and I appreciate it, and I try to take all of it, all of it in. But, you know, sometimes I'm like, do you know, you know what the Lord requires? Like, are you thinking about that, or you just got some preferences here you want to get worked out in the context of a local church? And I got a boss. I mean, I love to just do everything everybody wants me to do, but at the end of the day, I got to do what God wants me to do. And even so, you know, it's kind of crazy. We've got this whole cultural phenomenon of people assuming authority in other people's lives and telling them what to do. I mean, I'm sorry for anybody named Karen in the audience today. But this has been a thing, right? This like, is what people have come up with this term of what happens when you step over the invited space to where you think that you belong being there to tell someone else what to do. And Paul is saying, you know, when we don't create welcome and we decide we're the arbiter of decisions, that's, we're stepping over into God's space and we're saying, we're giving him advice about how to manage his workers. Are they not filled with the Spirit? Are they not the temple of God? In this issue, do they not have the ability to work out with fear and trembling the faith that God has placed in them? Did you bring them to salvation? How did they even get in here? You know, isn't it amazing someone that I didn't have the influence or power to save out of their sin and direct toward God? I now believe I am responsible for making sure that they become holy. Now, that's not to say we don't have this wonderful opportunity to encourage one another. But we go far beyond that, don't we? And we definitely go beyond it when we decide to skip welcome and go on to judgment. We're in danger of judging God's servant. It's a foolish thing to assume that you are so right about a situation that you can cross the boundary of someone who has no responsibility to you to give instruction to them about what they are doing on matters of secondary importance. 
When it comes to these matters that we've been talking about here this morning and relating to other Christians and pastors in our community or pastors you will have, we are told that they have a master. They have someone to whom they are responsible and that there is something actually inappropriate with assuming that we are their authority when we are not. It's more important... Paul is saying that you do not usurp God's authority in people's lives than forcing a sort of agreement about matters that you may be over-concerned with yourself. We are in danger, he says, of judging God's servants for God's assignments. Number four, we're in danger, verses 5 through 9, of coercion in matters of conviction. Coercion in matters of conviction. Verses 5 through 9 give us a powerful idea about these issues that can really help us. It is basically, it says that some things are best worked on in the bigger context of someone's personal relationship with God. That, that, that you actually don't have the perspective or ability and often the knowledge of the background of someone's life, the inner workings of what God is doing in them, to be able to decide for them how they make certain decisions you may think you know what is wisest for them but you must tread carefully he goes on to a to a new example or issue to begin helping us kind of illustrate that he says he talks about esteeming one day as more important than another you see that so he's, he's just moving on to a different issue than the food one in the context, it was about Sabbaths and Jewish holidays versus some Christians who were worshiping on the first day of the week. As the pattern began to develop in the early church, worshiping on the day of the resurrection and what they would do or not do on those days. About this, Paul elevates, listen, he elevates the role of someone having a clear conscience in their decisions with God over agreement with other Christians. You see what he does as we get into verse 5? At the end he says, In these issues, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant way to say it. It creates a category that we need to have if we're going to learn to live in a body expressing the welcome of the gospel and not always agree with one another. It's a, it's a category where the action or decision itself is not as important as how the person is relating to God about it. You see, there's some decisions that are not clearly questions of sin or not sin. They are questions of wisdom. They're questions of how a person should work out God's calling in their situation. And what might be, seem right to one person in their context and situation may not be the way that God would have them flesh out theirs because there are differences that you can't see or understand. And so what we are in danger of is actually convincing people to go against something that they feel is a true conviction from God. And what's going on is they're relating to God saying, the worst thing I could do is disobey God. Amen. Right? The worst thing that we can do in life is disobey God. And so in this matter, I may feel a strong conviction that, that the only way that I can obey God is to do a certain thing. Now, you may be wrong or right about that. But what I would say to you is, don't do anything that teaches your heart to disobey God. 
that the, the first and foremost thing in your life, if you, if you are so dedicated to, to obeying God with your whole life, I think all these other little agreements are going to be just fine in the church. All these other issues are going to kind of work themselves out. But we got a bigger problem with being unwilling to obey God. That should capture our attention. And so what happens is as we talk about these issues, we don't want to coerce people to go against convictions that God maybe in that specific situation has actually placed there. Because these are issues where there isn't a clear right or wrong instructed in Scripture that calls it sin or not sin. And there are, there's a huge amount of decisions we make in life that fall into that category. And those are many of the things Christians argue about. So, listen, there are clear things that are sin in Scripture in all times and all places. I don't want that to get lost in this discussion. What we're not saying this morning is, when somebody says something that the Bible, when somebody says adultery is fine, and we say, no, it's not, you need to repent, the Bible backs us up and says, that's right. Okay? We're not talking about that, though. We're talking about other issues where the Bible hasn't spoken entirely clearly about this thing. There are many decisions in life that are not a matter of sinning or not sinning in and of themselves, but are a matter of how in your heart and mind you are relating to God. Alcohol is a good example here, I believe. Drunkenness is a sin. You should avoid drunkenness at all costs in your life as a way of not disobeying God. But we also see that one Christian can actually drink alcohol as an act of rebellion against God and should avoid it altogether, and another can drink it without any real rejection uh, of a bound conscience before God. And it really depends on your history, your context, your circumstances, and your motivation, and you should get real honest with God about that before you think about the ways you make those decisions. You see, what we really need to be driven in these items of disagreement that we're talking about is for us to actually become people who bring ourselves before the Lord. And we become honest about what's going on in our heart because a coerced obedience doesn't really help us understand what's driving us underneath. And we need to become more deeply aware of that, and God sees all of those things. Theologians traditionally call this this category, individual soul liberty. That's your, you know, thousand dollar phrase for the morning. But individual soul liberty means one on matters where scripture is clear and detailed, we are all conscience bound to make the same decisions. And on matters of applying the scriptures to specific and complex situations, we are not to bind one another's conscience beyond what the scriptures clearly teach. And we're to allow one another in the individual soul of yours, liberty before God, to work out what is wise and honest and good before God, and even feel the burden and responsibility to do so. Because some of y'all would rather me tell you what's right or wrong. So that when it doesn't work out, you can blame me. But that's a danger to your soul. Because God created you to be filled with the Spirit, to walk as a priest in His kingdom, to carry out a mission that I can't see or know about, and I am just a servant in His kingdom, and He is the Master. Augustine comments on Paul's 
exhortation not to pass judgment on disputable matters. He says, Paul says this so that when something might be done with either good or bad motives, we should leave the judgment to God and not presume to judge the heart of someone else, which we do not see. But when it comes to things which obviously could not have been done with good and innocent intentions, it's not wrong if we pass judgment. So in the matter of food, where it's not known what the motive in eating is, Paul does not want us to be judges, but let God do that. But in the case of the abominable immorality mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, where a man has taken his stepmother, Paul taught us to judge. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. For that man could not possibly claim that he committed such a gross act of indecency with good intentions. So we must pass judgment on the things that are obviously wrong. And he goes on to say, and leave the rest for God to judge. As we close, the last big reason he compels us to this is to say we are in danger of losing sight of our own accounting. You see, if we concern ourselves with forcing agreement, judging others, constantly overstepping our authority, we are in danger of losing sight of our own accounting. In the end, Paul has one major concern with us if we do not heed this instruction. We will lose sight of our own accounting before God. In verse 10, he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He goes down to verse 12 and he says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So he says to us, with all of our concerns about one another and overstepping into one another's lives to force agreement, he says, the the real cure to it is turning your eyes to the judgment seat of God. If we busy ourselves playing God in the lives of others, we are likely not to busy ourselves with looking to God in our own. The judgment seat of God is mentioned to humble us, to remind us that there is a judge, to remind us that we are far too lacking in wisdom and perspective to be the necessary and insightful judges of our brothers and sisters in the church in matters of the heart. But when we look to the Christ, when we look to Christ, and consider our own account, we return to remember the bigness of the gospel. The gospel that makes the space for welcome for one another. And we're free to recognize we may be wrong, and others may be wrong, but the one who's sitting on the judgment seat is Jesus. He died not only for the wrong of our, that our disagreements may yield. He died for the clear wrongs each of us have done. And today, you need not live in the constant fear of being wrong. The constant fear that others might be wrong. We lean into trusting Christ, examining our hearts. But we need not Live with a spirit of fear that often drives judgment, but you can bring yourself humbly before him and trust him to be the judge while you receive his welcome and distribute it to others. The Christ that sits on the seat of judgment is the one who shed his blood on the cross for our sins, and he is tender-hearted to those with a tender conscience to those who exercise their freedom so they could lean into the mission. And he knows what he's doing in your life. 
And he's the one that we're ultimately accountable to. And his gospel is big enough to provide us a table to gather around. In a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to celebrate that. As we take the Lord's Supper, we are giving testimony that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe this gospel for ourselves that calls us to consider what it means for us to be accountable to God and to remember that Jesus' body was broken for our sin, for the wrong that we've committed, for the wrong views we hold. His blood was shed so that we could be freed to be welcomed around his table and to welcome one another. And this morning, if you share in that testimony, we invite you to take the bread and the cup and celebrate with us. Lord, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity. We pray, Lord, as we come to this time of communion, Lord, that you would fill us with a sense of clear conviction about how we can apply these things to our own lives. Lord, we want to be a church that is unified around you, that celebrates the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that realizes that all of us, all of us are in process. And Lord, your sanctifying work of the Spirit is more powerful than anything that will bring us into holiness. And you can make us stand. You can build us up. You can make us mature through the powerful work that you have for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.